Hi there, this is Dr. Rita Marie Moscalzo, and today we'll be mapping insulin resistance on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on how to use the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Rita Marie Lascalzo. Dr. Rita Marie is a licensed doctor of chiropractic with certifications in acupuncture, nutrition, herbal medicine, and heart math. As the founder of the Institute of Nutritional Endocrinology, she specializes in using the wisdom of nature to restore balance to hormones with a special emphasis on thyroid, adrenal, and insulin imbalances. She has trained and certified hundreds of practitioners in the art of using palate-pleasing whole fresh food as medicine. Best-selling author, speaker, and woman's health authority with over 25 years of clinical experience, Dr. Rita Marie offers online courses, long distance coaching, counseling, and informative live events. And because I always like to say that blood sugar balance is a non-negotiable and regulation of insulin is such an important part of the blood sugar equation, I'm excited to dive in and discuss insulin resistance today with my friend, Dr. Rita Marie. Welcome, Dr. Rita Marie. I'm so pleased to finally have you join me on the 15-Minute Matrix. And I am thrilled to be here, Andrea. Just my my pleasure. So insulin. Insulin is, of course, a hormone. It's produced by the pancreas in response to the rise in the sugar levels in the blood in response to the food we eat, of course. But I'm wondering, Dr. Rita Marie, if you can just start us out by telling us a bit more about this character, insulin, in our bodies, so we can then talk a little bit more about insulin resistance. Sure. Yeah. So uh, what I like to think about insulin is it's the escort service for glucose, Mm. right? Without insulin, we can't get glucose into the cell. So it's really critical. But it's a double-edged sword as well. So there's a lot of things about insulin that people don't realize. Number one, it's a fat storage hormone. And there's a lot of people who talk about, oh, eat every two hours to keep your blood sugar steady. And it's probably the worst advice that you can give your clients because it's a fat storage hormone and you don't want a fat storage hormone in there all the time. The other thing about insulin that really gets me excited, but also, you know, makes it a little bit of a scary player is that, yes, we absolutely need it to get sugar into the cells so the mitochondria can make ATP and so that everything's energized. But on the other hand, insulin has some downsides. So in addition to it being a fat storage hormone, it can affect other hormones. So it affects the magnesium levels in the Mm. body. It causes the kidneys to excrete more magnesium, which is kind of a catch-22 because magnesium is an important player in helping the insulin escort the sugar across the cells. And that can cause an excess in blood pressure because it also affects sodium and it can contribute to sodium retention in the kidneys. It increases the blood pressure. Um, It affects the thyroid hormones. It affects the, the... receptors for thyroid and in fact the receptors for almost every other hormone so when we talk insulin resistance we also have to play into there's other hormone resistances that don't get as much 
depress, let's say, yeah, as it's insulin, true. right? So there's so many things that insulin does. It affects sex hormone binding globulin, which increases that, which decreases the availability of testosterone and estrogen to the cells. So those are just a few things about insulin that I think people should know that most people don't know. Yeah, so well said. I love how you brought us through really the soup, the whole body. When we look at insulin resistance, I want to look at why we'd have insulin resistance. But first, can we talk about what it is? Like what's what's happening at the cellular level? Yeah, so there's a receptor there, the GLUT4 receptors that accept the insulin and the sugar and take it into the cells. Excess insulin causes those cells to basically, I like to say, put their hands, <laughs> put your hands over your ears and say, mm. no, nope, it's too much because we know the damaging effects. You know, one of the other damaging effects I didn't mention is, is having, making cells stiffer, stiffer, you know, it stiffens them. So there's not as much fluidity and flexibility. So the cells have this protective mechanism say, okay, no, we're going to turn this off. So basically insulin resistance is a state where we can't, we have a lot of insulin and a lot of sugar in the blood, but we can't get it across the membranes. The cells become resistant and it happens with excess. All hormones have that issue where if there's too much of the hormone taken, you develop resistance. But people are eating kind of the standard American diet, but even the standard American diet made a little bit healthier, yeah. they're eating too much sugar, they're yep. eating too much flour, and they're eating too many carbohydrates, which triggers the release of more insulin to try to get it in. And the pancreas is very accepting. Okay, we got more sugar, we need more insulin. We have more sugar, we need more insulin. So over time, then we, we develop the resistance from too much of it being there. So you just spoke into some of the triggers that we might experience if we go over to what I call the story side of the matrix, that left area, the ATMs. Are there any antecedents that we should be on high alert for that would predispose somebody to insulin resistance? Absolutely. Well, I mean, there's always genetics. Genetics right. play in big, big, you know, it's, it's a small amount that it plays in, but people who have the genetic tendencies will tend to have more sensitivity, right. right? So a little bit of sugar may not hurt somebody without a genetic tendency, but a little bit of sugar is going to be definitely a, fact, a, a problem for people who have the genetic tendency. So that's it. Early, like early onset of sugar exposure. So kids that are not breastfed, which is very common in like people who grew up in our era, you know, our parents didn't breastfeed back then. So, you know, not having that and having these formulas with all kinds of not just sugars in them, but with fats that aren't good, right? So the exposure to fats that are oxidative, we get oxidative stress, we get damage to all cell membranes mm -hmm. and insulin receptors get affected by that. Um, exposure to toxins and pesticides and all that has an effect on the insulin receptors. So those are antecedent factors and exposure. People who are in moldy environments, people who are <clears throat> living in areas where there's a lot of pesticides in the air, people in, in farmland areas can be more prone to it. What about age? Does age uh, factor into our ability? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was just going to say age because as we age, you know, everything starts to get broken down. Not so much because of our age. I mean, there's some of it that is result of age, but so a lot of it is just repeated exposure, exposure, exposure year after year. So in people over 60, the incidence of insulin resistance is super high compared to 
the incidence in people under 40. It's so interesting because I call blood sugar management, as I know you would, a non-negotiable. I always say, if you're not sleeping, you're not pooping, and your blood sugar is not balanced, it's very hard to pass go. But this area that you're speaking into and that you do speak into so brilliantly about insulin sensitivity really is holding hands with the blood sugar. Like we can't just look at blood sugar. And I know clinically, I've seen so many people who think that they're hypoglycemic when it's really an insulin issue. How has that shown up for you in all the people that you've trained and worked with in terms of that tandem awareness? Yes, it's it's a really good point. And so when people say, oh, I'm hypoglycemic, it means my blood sugar's low. In reality, and I, I do meter to have people poke their finger with it for a meter. I also have them wear continuous glucose monitors. Yep. And in fact, the majority of people who think that they're having a blood sugar low, it's actually when their blood sugar is high that yep. they feel is that and the people are like, what do you mean? Well, the sugar's in the wrong place. It's in the blood, not in the cells. So well said. I think you have great metaphors for this. If we go over to the central part of the matrix, you talked about fat storage and the other hormones, thyroid and sex hormones. You talked about oxidative stress and environmental inputs. What about the gut and the immune system? How does insulin resistance play a role in issues that we may see in those arenas? Well, first of all, insulin resistance affects every cell in the body with the exception of of the endothelial linings of the blood vessels. They don't actually become insulin resistant. They just get damaged from the insulin. So that's something to really keep in mind that cardiac incidence and high blood pressure and all have to do with cells that don't become insulin resistant. But the rest of the cells do. So if you've got gut cells that are become insulin resistant, they're not getting the energy. The cells themselves aren't getting the energy to do their function, to pass nutrients through active transport, to prevent the passage of toxins through the membrane. So you affect that as well. The excess sugars um, can affect the microbiome. So yeah. we have a poor microbiome. And when we have bad microbiome, it affects everything, everything in the body. Um, there's all kinds of hormones secreted in the digestive tract. Most people don't talk about it or even think the digestive tract as the largest endocrine organ in the body. Right. There are at least close to 30 that I know of. There's probably dozens more that are not really written about. So there's hormones that are created and there's hormones that affect the uptake and the secretion of insulin from the gut. So it's like detect what's in there, secrete these glucagon-like peptides, GIP, GLP. There's all kinds of things in there that affect the production of insulin. So if the gut isn't working properly, then we're going to get problems with glucose dysregulation. Yeah. And that's going to lead to further cravings, right? And like other mental health concerns that we might see when somebody isn't able to utilize their sugars. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the immune system you mentioned, right? So the immune system, the immune tissue again, right? So the gut, we have to go back to the gut, right? Yep. The gut is one of the biggest immune system components. So the gut is like the biggest endocrine system. It's got the biggest immune system. The gut is super important. And I know you focus on that a lot when you're when you're teaching practitioners. But the the immunes, the immune support is is affected. So when people tend to have more, they're more prone to infections yeah. because of effect of sugar and the effect of insulin on the immune cells. And we know that we get people with peripheral nerve damage 
and then they, they're more prone to infection. Yeah. So one of your places of brilliance in talking about the entire endocrine system is what you recommend people do for it. So in talking to practitioners, Dr. Rita Marie, if we thought about the mediators, which really is the skill section of the matrix over on the right side, what are some of our top tactics for addressing insulin resistance? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So we got to get people to change their diet. Super important, obviously. Reduce the sugars, increase the really nutrient-dense vegetables and fibers and good fats. So those are critical. And most people know those things. But exercise is super mm. important. A trained muscle or trained cells they don't develop insulin resistance the same way that untrained muscle cells do. So exercise is super important. In particular, I like to teach short bursts of exercise because what that does is it increases growth hormone and decreases insulin and growth hormone and insulin are not kissing cousins. Mm -hmm. So when, when growth hormone goes up, insulin goes down. When insulin goes up, growth hormone goes down. So we have to look at that. Exercise, super important. Sleep, oh my God. Yes. I mean, you develop temporary insulin resistance from one night of bad sleep. And, and you can feel people. it. Like people will feel it, right? You can <laughs> feel that your cravings increase if you don't have a good night's sleep. Absolutely, absolutely. So sleep is important. Now imagine, you know, most people in, I think the average is like six hours of sleep is average in the US. So night after night, week after week, year after year, people develop insulin resistance. I tell people, if you've had a bad night of sleep, be super careful about your diet the next day. Like don't even think about eating carbs the next day after a bad night of sleep because your body won't be able to handle it even if you're perfectly healthy under normal circumstances. So that's super important. Stress, you gotta look at the, the correlation between cortisol and insulin. Right? When cortisol goes up, it's because we're supposed to be running away from hungry divers. So the body naturally mobilizes and sends energy to the extremities so we can get away. Turns off the prefrontal cortex, by the way, because you don't need that. What you need is the limbic system, what I call the lizard brain. But what happens is under stress, cortisol then naturally mobilizes sugar because we need more energy to get away from these tigers. And so it increases the breakdown of mostly proteins. It could be fat and glycogen as well, but mostly the cortisol triggers the breakdown of proteins, causes that to turn into sugar and then activates the extremities so we can get away. Mm. So when you've got stress and the, the cortisol goes up, that's going to cause the insulin to go up, right? To handle all that. Most of our stress isn't tiger stress. It's mostly immobile stress. We're sitting at the desk, we're, you know, chatting with children, whatever causes it. And so yes. we don't need the sugar. And so that sugar sits there and it's like, oh, what's happening here? We're, we have all this sugar, but where do we put it? Oh, let's just store it back. And so we end up with the, the restorage, especially in the visceral fat. So yeah. it's important. I always tell people, if you get stressed out, go for a run up and down the stairs, even do something to burn up some of that sugar that got in your system. And I personally have that experience of testing my blood sugar and then having this really stressful event happen and then testing my blood sugar again. I'm wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I just ate candy bar. I, yeah. I call it the candy bar eating effect of stress because the sugar was up like I had a candy bar, but I didn't have a candy bar. I just got stressed out. So Amazing. 
Amazing. So when we think about labs and what we might be looking at, I love that you talked about the finger pinpricking and there's more and more continuous glucose monitors available for practitioners to be working with, with clients and patients now. Any other critical labs that you're looking at to determine what the state is of the sugar metabolism? Yes, absolutely. So the typical, you know, Western approach is you test the fasting glucose, right? So with the continuous meters and with the finger pricking, you can do postprandial. So yeah. you can map it out. And I love to map it out and always find that peak. How high does it go? How high does it go? And how low does just, it go or not and how go? Low does yeah. it go? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So instead of just testing your blood sugar before a meal and two hours later, like they tell diabetics to do, at two hours, quite frankly, it should be back to normal. We want to catch the peak. And if, if people are having peaks of, you know, 140, 150, they're causing all those damages that diabetics get, peripheral neuropathies, retinopathies, nephropathies. So I think postprandial. But the other things that are missing that can give us an early, a much earlier sign that there's glucose dysregulation are insulin and hemoglobin A1C. Yep. Hemoglobin A1C is normally just tested in diabetics. And by the time they test it, oh, you're diabetic, let's test your hemoglobin A1C. They're already at 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 even, which means that their average blood glucose over the course of at least the last three months, but most likely over years, has been in the multi-hundreds, which is really damaging. So I think hemoglobin A1C should be part of a routine blood uh, screen starting in kids. Even. Yeah, I agree. If it's normal, leave yep. it. Okay, test it again in five years. If it's starting to inch up, I think it should be ideally around five. I should five point six is what's considered insulin above five point six insulin resistance. I like to see it right around five, and it starts creeping up. Yeah, then I know that there's a problem. We need to address it. But also insulin. It's very rarely tested, even in diabetics, unless we're thinking that this type 2 diabetic is going from insulin resistance to pancreatic failure, where is it at, or in type 1s, of course. So I think what we need to be doing is a fasting insulin spot check, same way as hemoglobin A1C, many times way before that we even think this person might be diabetic. Because the problem is, once a person crosses that threshold into diabetes, there's been decades of glucose dysregulation that's been causing damage throughout the body. So well said, Dr. Rita Marie. I really love this deep dive into the importance of insulin and insulin resistance. Thank you so much for joining us on the 15 Minute Matrix. You are so welcome. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The 15-Minute Matrix team includes music by my son, Gilbert Nakayama, and production support from Renee Hunt, Natalie Merrill, and Christine Shook. You can visit us and hear more episodes at 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode ready and waiting for you, please head over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. You also have an open invitation to email us. We want to know who you'd like to hear on the podcast and what you'd like to see mapped on the 15 Minute Matrix. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. Thank you.